What makes a good historical train wreck? As you might guess, the name implies someone who seems to have everything going for them, but in the end crashes and burns, usually from decisions that they themselves make. There are quite a lot of examples, some you've probably heard of, like Douglas MacArthur, Pope Pius IX, and Huey Long, and others that you just might not expect, like Teddy Roosevelt and Julius Caesar. There are four train wrecks from American history that I like to use to narrow down the qualities and features of a good historical train wreck. In 1800, Aaron Burr defeated a number of founding fathers, including that lovable curmudgeon John Adams, to nearly win the presidency of the United States. The close election went to the House of Representatives, and Burr lost by a Federalist nose to Thomas Jefferson, which made him vice president. In 1861, George McClellan, at age 34, was the commander-in-chief of all the Union armies. He was widely regarded as a military expert and top-notch planner and organizer. At the same point in time, Ulysses S. Grant was a colonel of volunteers after failing as a soldier, shopkeeper, and potato farmer. He went to see McClellan about a regular army commission, but McClellan wouldn't meet with him. In 1928, Herbert Hoover was one of the best known and most admired men in the world. He had years of experience in crisis management, economics, government, and foreign affairs. He led one of the first international food relief organizations, saving millions from starvation after the First World War. When the Mississippi River flooded in 1927, the governors along the river begged President Calvin Coolidge to put Hoover in charge of flood relief, even though Hoover was just Secretary of Commerce. It seemed to the nation and the world that there was no problem Herbert Hoover couldn't fix. At the same time, Franklin Roosevelt, essentially paralyzed from the waist down, reluctantly ran for governor of New York. He wasn't sure he could win. In 1941, Douglas MacArthur was promoted to the rank of three-star general after a distinguished career in the First World War and as Army Chief of Staff. He was placed in command of all American forces in the Far East, which prevailing wisdom said was going to be the focal point of American involvement in the World War. At the same time, Dwight Eisenhower, who had worked for MacArthur only a few years before, had just been made a one-star general and had only one active duty combat command. Each of these men were at the top of their game. They were within sight of the lifelong goals they had set for themselves. In each case, you could argue, there was nothing standing in their way, except themselves. By 1804, Aaron Burr had been dropped from the ticket as vice president and would shortly thereafter stand trial for treason. He went into exile and eventually returned to the United States under an assumed name. Thomas Jefferson won re-election without him and went on to be regarded as one of the nation's most revered statesmen. By 1864, George McClellan had been removed from command and lost his bid for the presidency. He spent a few years in Europe, then returned home to become governor of New Jersey. Ulysses S. Grant was the nation's foremost military hero and served two presidential terms. McClellan died in 1885 in relative obscurity at a time when the memoir of former President Ulysses S. Grant was a bestseller. In 1932, Herbert Hoover was defeated for a second presidential term by a man whose political career had been assumed to be as dead as his useless legs only a few short years before. FDR won in a landslide. Hoover ranks in the bottom third of most presidential rankings, while Roosevelt remains steadily in the top five. By 1952, Douglas MacArthur had been fired by President Harry Truman for insubordination. He came home to the U.S. and after a few ticker tape parades and an address to a joint session of Congress, the old soldier faded away. 
Dwight Eisenhower was the hero of the Second World War and the Republican nominee for president. You can probably see where I'm going with this. Each of them fell from nearly the greatest heights attainable and were eventually surpassed by men who had been relative unknowns or who had been counted out of the game before it started. They ended up eclipsed by men who originally appeared to be no competition at all. So what quality or defect existed that denied them the prize of a lifetime and the treasured place in history? I use the word train wreck as a kind of verbal shorthand to describe that intangible quality that made each of these historical figures go from being household names and wielding vast power and influence to end up as relative nobodies. There was something about them that rubbed people the wrong way. Whether it's ego, arrogance, tone deafness to public opinion or the sensitivities of those around them, or a sense of superiority to those above them. They were not team players. In the end, the men I listed and the other historical figures I will cover in this show destroyed their own careers or ruined their chances for a celebrated place in history. They did it by choice, with their eyes open, always believing they were in the right. Aaron Burr had the votes to become president. He didn't have the character, or so his detractors believed. Alexander Hamilton, who worked the hardest to defeat Burr's election, and who hated Thomas Jefferson too pretty good, by the way, said that he would rather have a man in the White House with the wrong principles than one with none at all. And Burr, unlike Jefferson, had openly criticized the one untouchable man in the early Republic, George Washington. So when his fate came down to the subjective opinions of a few men, he lost. George McClellan was as high up as one could get in the Union Army. He was widely respected as a military planner and strategist. He was given all the men and material he needed to win the war. Abraham Lincoln made no secret about what he expected of his commanding general. He wanted McClellan to point his Grand Army southward and take the fight to the enemy. But McClellan had zero respect for Lincoln, who he called the original guerrilla, or his cabinet, and he didn't hide his opinion of them. The problem was, those were precisely the people who got to decide whether McClellan kept his job. Herbert Hoover had principles. He believed in the power of the free market, private industry, and economic and financial systems unencumbered by government control. He didn't think the president had any business getting involved in the economy. The problem was that after 1929, the free market, private industry, and the economic and financial systems of the United States and the world were collapsing. Government was the only entity left that could build things and feed people, and President Hoover refused to do it, even in the face of widespread suffering and ruin. The people of the United States replaced him with the man who would. Douglas MacArthur's career didn't start going downhill when he got on the wrong side of Harry Truman. At that point in history, Truman was astoundingly unpopular in comparison to his general. MacArthur's career started its decline a dozen years before, when he was not chosen as Allied Supreme Commander in Europe. The two men who got to decide, President Franklin D. Roosevelt and Army Chief of Staff George Marshall, thought MacArthur was an egomaniac who'd always put himself ahead of his men, his cause, and his country. He did nothing to change their minds and was shunted off to the side long before Harry Truman sent him packing. You've probably known people in your lives who outwardly seem to have everything going for them, but in the end, things somehow never work out. Although some may find the term pejorative, Trainwreck comes the closest to figuring out what went wrong with people who had demonstrated their superior talents, who had all the connections they needed, 
who always seemed to be in the right place at the right time, and who seemed destined for success. It was their own self-sabotage that ultimately cost them everything. Historical train wrecks have a number of elements in common. Talent. There is no question that these people had what it took to succeed. Whatever the ultimate prize in their career path, they had the skills and demonstrable talent to achieve it. These talents manifested early and never deserted them. No matter what else you might say about Aaron Burr, George McClellan, Herbert Hoover, and Douglas MacArthur, their abilities were undeniable. Success. Each of them had a significant track record of success in their lives. Even if their endeavors aren't always germane to their career ambitions, they still distinguish themselves. Aaron Burr was a courageous and successful military officer. George McClellan was a civil engineer and railroad president. Herbert Hoover made millions as a mining engineer and businessman. Douglas MacArthur was one of the youngest West Point superintendents and made innovations at the academy that are still in use today. Inevitability. Aaron Burr's rise through early American politics made him a serious contender for the presidency. McClellan was general-in-chief of the Union Army at age 34. Herbert Hoover first ran for president when he was 46 years old. After service in the Harding and Coolidge administrations, Hoover was the frontrunner in the 1928 election and won in a landslide. MacArthur served with distinction in the First World War and became the Army's youngest major general in history. Inflexibility. As each of these figures rose through the ranks of their chosen professions, the same qualities that contributed to their rise started to work against them. Aaron Burr's self-promotion and obvious ambition was considered a character flaw in the early days of the American Republic. George McClellan's careful organization and outfitting of the Union Army made him unwilling to squander all that investment by sending the army into battle. This apparent hesitancy was the beginning of McClellan's break with President Lincoln, who at one point asked to borrow the army from McClellan if the general wasn't using it for anything anyway. President Hoover didn't believe the government should interfere in the economy, despite the widespread suffering of the American people. His principles had contributed to his success, but his commitment to them in calamitous times was one reason for his downfall. General MacArthur always looked out for number one. His rapid advance through the ranks was helped by his unabashed ego. He believed he knew best, and his track record often proved him right. But failing to factor in the commander-in-chief resulted in his ultimate downfall. Once these historical figures neared the apex of their lifelong goals, it became necessary, ironically enough, to blunt the sharp edges of the very qualities that had brought them this far. If Burr had supported Jefferson's presidential run and been the loyal number two man, he would have been in line to succeed him in 1808. He also probably shouldn't have shot Alexander Hamilton, which didn't endear him to lots of people. But Burr couldn't delay or tone down his ambition when he was so close to the prize. George McClellan could have turned his massive, well-trained, superbly equipped army over to other generals like Grant and Sherman to take into battle and still gotten all the credit for the victory, even if he remained at headquarters. He could have accommodated the president's involvement in war planning. Lincoln's later relationship with General Grant was one in which the president would offer ideas on strategy, but allowed his general to do as he wished as long as he was aggressively prosecuting the war. Lincoln wanted his generals to take the fight to the enemy. If McClellan hadn't been so dismissive of Lincoln as an incompetent, he could have seen what Lincoln wanted and made it happen. 
Lincoln and McClellan's relationship was one of distrust and suspicion, mainly due to McClellan. Lincoln and Grant's relationship was one of mutual trust and respect. It didn't start out that way, but both men worked to make it happen. McClellan didn't even try. Herbert Hoover, an expert in crisis management, should have acknowledged the seriousness of the Depression early on. But his experience and beliefs told him that commerce and enterprise were the solutions to economic problems. He didn't want Americans to become dependent upon the public dole for their survival. He didn't think the economic downturn was going to be as severe or long-lasting as it turned out. But the private sector was taking a huge beating in the early days of the Depression. It was in no position to do anything of significance. People were homeless and starving and needed immediate relief. Holding firm on his principles lost the people and the election. If Hoover had sent money and food directly to the people, he could have bought the time he needed to enact a longer-term strategy. This is exactly what FDR did when he got his turn. Douglas MacArthur was all about Douglas MacArthur. His ego inspired confidence in his men as well as himself. He couldn't imagine error or failure and proceeded as if he was always right and could never lose. America loves optimists, and they especially love optimists who deliver. But MacArthur assumed he knew more than the president and didn't feel like following orders from above. President Truman ordered him not to talk to the press or foreign heads of state when MacArthur was in command in Korea, but MacArthur did what MacArthur wanted. No president was going to get in his way. Truman couldn't abide the insubordination even from a winning general, so MacArthur had to go. Like McClellan, MacArthur could have incorporated the president into his thinking and shown just the right amount of deference and gotten his way. Presidents are temporary. After his firing under the guise of campaigning for the Republican nomination for president, MacArthur attacked the Truman administration in ways that seemed personal, which turned off a majority of Americans. MacArthur's real goal was the rank of General of the Armies, once held by John J. Pershing. MacArthur lobbied for the job, which put his ego on full display, which was one of the big reasons he never got it. But at the same time, his military experience was sought out by Presidents Eisenhower and Kennedy. Had he been able to tone down his ego, he might just have gotten his heart's desire. Self-sabotage. There was no one else to blame. As these train wrecks gained ground and began their decline, they had the option to prevent their ultimate downfalls. They refused to do it. Aaron Burr wasn't forced to campaign for president a couple of times. He could have dialed down the intrigue he was known for by Alexander Hamilton and John Adams and others. And Hamilton didn't shoot himself, even metaphorically. George McClellan might have summoned the humanity to see the humanity in Abe Lincoln instead of dismissing him as a country buffoon. He could have acknowledged his own limitations, even though they were impressive. He was a master organizer and planner. He could have stopped at that pinnacle and given his massive army to someone else to set fire to the South. Herbert Hoover could have gone for a walk in the shantytown's name for him. He could have toured a Hooverville in 1931 and talked to women who gave their children away because they could no longer feed them. He could have sat with men who would work at any job, if only there were jobs. Hoover was one of America's greatest fixers, but he kept his toolbox closed when the nation needed him the most. Douglas MacArthur could have stood his ground on his talent instead of his ego. 
as one of the few men who told his own story of accomplishment and greatness and knew it to be true, he might have let someone else be the messenger. He could have found any number of spokesmen to go tell it on the mountain, and might have subsequently found himself at the top. Every historical train wreck has a counterpart, if you look hard enough. For every Aaron Burr, there is a Thomas Jefferson. If you look at them closely, you might find they weren't all that different. But one man has monuments in the nation's capital, and the other is a villain. For every egotistical George McClellan or Douglas MacArthur, there is a self-effacing and humble Ulysses Grant and Dwight Eisenhower. For every principled, hands-on Herbert Hoover, there is a morally fluid FDR, for whom the ends always justified the means. And but for a few self-inflicted wounds, we would have had a President Burr or a General of the Armies MacArthur. These four are some of my favorite examples of historical train wrecks. There are plenty others, names that might surprise you like Theodore Roosevelt, Constantine the Great, Benjamin Franklin, John D. Rockefeller, and Julius Caesar. Others, like Ernest Hemingway and Huey Long, might not. But why study them at all? I feel far more uplifted when I read the stirring biographies of Thomas Jefferson and Ulysses Grant and Franklin Delano Roosevelt and Dwight D. Eisenhower. When it comes to historical train wrecks, I end up yelling at the pages I read as if these folks are the naive heroes in a horror film, walking down the dark steps to the locked basement room where the killer waits. I can see their inevitable doom. Knowing all their many gifts and accomplishments, I holler at them to stop and turn around and go back so that they can have the lives they were so close to living. There's a lot to like about them. There's a lot to admire. And we should study them for all the reasons we learn history. The story of humanity isn't to be gazed at with a squint from a few feet away like an abstract painting in a gallery. It is there to be dug up and the earth turned over to see what is underneath, so that we learn its hard lessons and quit having to be taken back to school. And even in your own personal life, if you're talented and successful and can see the prize of a lifetime from a short way off, when the time comes, don't be a train wreck. If you've enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting the show on our Patreon page. There's lots of fun bonus content over there, like how to talk to your pets about history, early access to new episodes, and some incidents where fans of the show take me to task about train wrecks I haven't talked about, and some that I have. It's also a great way to keep the show going. $3 a month or so goes a long way toward keeping the train wrecks on the tracks, and your support means a lot. Go to patreon.com forward slash history's train wrecks. And thank you so much. If you have your own ideas about what makes for a good historical train wreck, or you know of some way George McClellan or Herbert Hoover could have kept their jobs, you can Twitter to at history's train. You can Instagram, whatever that is, to history's train wrecks. If there's a historical train wreck you'd love to see on the tracks, join the history's train wrecks Facebook group. And as always, tell every history nerd you know about us. We definitely need to stick together. On our next episode, we'll dive into a temper tantrum that just maybe changed the course of American history. Stay tuned for Temper Temper. Support comes from the I'm Not Allowed to Watch the News podcast. The host of the show is a holder of unpopular opinions on topics ranging from politics to health care to foreign policy to what foreign accent you should use when talking to your dog. When the news is on, 
he tends to rant. It scares the dogs, so his wife revoked his news-watching privileges. So he went and started this podcast. That'll teach her. Go to notalloweditowatchthenews.com and find out what all the fuss is about.